Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you for watching this virtual lecture event. I'm John Lovewell. I'm chairman of the Board of Trustees of the Institute of uh, World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. And we have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program, the first professional doctoral program in our field in the nation. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition cost. One can also audit a course at much less cost. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. That's iwp.edu. A little about the format, I'm going to introduce our speaker and then he'll speak for 20 or so minutes and then we'll entertain questions. Um, uh, Dr. Rob Spaulding is a national security policy strategist and globally recognized for his knowledge of Chinese economic competition and influence, as well as for his ability to forecast global trends and develop innovative solutions. He has served in senior positions of strategy and diplomacy within the Defense and State Departments for more than 26 years. Retiring as a Brigadier General, he was the Chief Architect for the Trump Administration's widely praised National Security Strategy. I think there was also an IWP graduate who worked on that with you. And the Senior Director for Strategy to the President of the National Security Council. Dr. Spaulding has written extensively on national security matters. His book, Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept, is an executive summary of his almost decade-long work countering Chinese Communist Party influence. He's been interviewed about the economy and national security on Fox News, BBC, OAN, and CNBC, as well as numerous radio and YouTube channels, both nationally and internationally. Dr. Spaulding's relationship with business leaders fostered during his time as a military fellow at the Council on, on Foreign Relations allowed him to recommend pragmatic solutions to complex foreign policy and national security issues, now driving positive economic outcomes for the nation. Dr. Spaulding's groundbreaking work on competition in secure 5G has reset the global environment for the next phase of the information age. Dr. Spaulding is an Olmsted Scholar, a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute in Washington, as well as a senior associate fellow at the Henry Jackson Society of London. Dr. Spaulding. Thank you, and it's, uh, it's great to be back at IWP. Um, I, uh, I really enjoy uh, the, uh, the school and I enjoy speaking here. I got to know John Lynchowski when I was at the White House and uh, I consulted with him regularly on influence uh, and, and his views about public diplomacy. So IWP uh, uh, holds a special place in my heart and uh, I'm glad to be back talking to you. I thought I'd go into some current uh, events with regard to the relationship and then open it up for some Q&A. 
uh, first of all, you know, the, the unemployment numbers really uh, have to be um, really causing some concern for uh, the Communist Party now because uh, the stock market just went on a run today when unemployment numbers came back better than predicted. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how our economy um, recovers from coronavirus. I think one of the things that's come out of coronavirus is just a recognition on the part of the American people what the Chinese Communist Party represents. And what it represents is a regime that was bent on taking advantage of the spread of the coronavirus. And, and there's some things that we know uh, that really lead us to the, this conclusion. And for some background to, background to that, I'll just uh, reference my time in Beijing as a senior defense official. When I, I arrived in December 5th, 2016, and a week later, the Chinese took the UUV in the South China Sea, the underwater, unmanned underwater vehicle, the glider essentially that was uh, taking temperature and pressure readings in the South China Sea. Picked it up in front of our um, frigate that was just about to get it. And, uh, and of course that resulted in a, in a crisis that I was, uh, I had the responsibility of negotiating us out of with the, with the Chinese. And um, so essentially I spent the better part of a night, all night, uh, sitting next to a, a Chinese general, the, the Russian representative actually for the, um, uh, for the PLA, since the American representative was uh, off on travel. And we stayed there while the uh, Central um, Military Commission basically uh, talked the uh, ship's captain into how to configure the UUV so it can be transferred to the U.S. ship. And what I was, uh, what I learned during that episode and uh, during that time was just how um, you know impressive the the reform of the PLA, the first tranche of reform to the PLA had been with regard to their ability to conduct command and control over their forces. Xi Jinping had almost direct control over the ship from uh, the headquarters of the CMC. And, uh, you know, they were laying photos back and forth. Uh, you know, really, um, it was really impressive. And so as I, as I sat there and watched that, and as I considered, you know, what they've done, not only with the People's Liberation Army, but also with the Chinese Communist Party, you know, and uh, the leading small groups, what you what you begin to get uh, a vision of is Xi Jinping's ability to essentially control the country, um, you know, from Beijing. And and so the reason this is pertinent, because we know from you know, Xi Jinping's own mouth that he personally was in charge of what was going on in Wuhan on 7th of January. So what a lot of times what the Chinese Communist Party likes to do is say, well, you know, it's the local officials that did it, not not the not Beijing. Well, Beijing was in charge on the 7th of January. Xi Jinping has, has told us that. On the 13th of January, we also have media reports that there was human to human transmission. And of course, the World Health Organization tweeted about limited human to human transmission on the 14th of January. So we know that that they had an idea about this human to human transmission. And then, of course, uh, another 10 days go by when China's in peak travel season before Wuhan is shut down, but domestic travel is being, domestic air travel from Wuhan is being uh, 
shut down while international travel is continuing. And then, of course, on 23 January, Wuhan is shut down and the Wuhan mayor says, well, five million people have already left Wuhan. So human to human transmission, the Communist Party knows about it. They're in charge. They proceed to let it uh, happen internationally. Uh, later that month, the president, our president, shuts down travel to and from China, uh, but not to and from Europe. At the same time this is going on, this peak travel coming out of Wuhan, uh, the Chinese are beginning to turn from a, a net exporter of PPE and masks to a net importer. So at a time when they're telling the world and pressuring the World Health Organization not to say anything about human to human transmission, they're essentially uh, making sure that the flow of PPE and masks are not going away from China, but actually going to China. So we get hung up a lot talking about what's the origin of the virus uh, when we have plenty of, of uh, information, data, to say that the origin of the pandemic was the decisions made by the Chinese Communist Party uh, in, the, in the beginning and, and middle uh, stages of January when they essentially um, not prevented, not slowed down, but promoted the spread of it. They promoted the spread of it. And so, and so the World Health Organization met in Geneva on January 23rd, talked about human-to-human -human transmission, but of course didn't declare a global pandemic until the 30th of January. Now, so that's, a, that's how a Chinese uh, Communist Party-led regime, regime acts uh, in the face of a global pandemic. Uh, let's look how a democratic uh, China acts. So in December, Taiwan sends uh, representatives of the CDC to China to uh, speak with, the, um, with medical professionals in Wuhan, uh, get rebuffed, and come back to Taiwan and say, we're concerned that there's human-to-human -human transmission, there's something going on, they won't tell us. And on the 31st of December, they fire off a letter to the World Health Organization, but of course, Taiwan's not a member of the World Health Organization, so therefore they ignore that. Uh, then on the 1st of January, the 1st of January, Taiwan begins to board airplanes coming from Wuhan and check passengers uh, for infection uh, coming off the airplane, and then shortly thereafter shut down uh, air travel from Wuhan. And they institute other measures like masks and social distancing and and checks at, at borders. And so very early on, they recognize uh, that they've got a problem and they start instituting the measures uh, of uh, a, a properly functioning CDC or a, a pro properly functioning World Health Organization. Now, why did they do that? Well, they did that because they had um, many deaths from 2003 uh, when SARS happened. And I was in Shanghai with my family living in, in Shanghai uh, when SARS uh, kicked off and we were evacuated. But uh, I can tell you that the, 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 how the Chinese Communist Party reacted to SARS is really uh, no different other than, uh, thankfully, SARS wasn't as um, infectious as uh, the coronavirus and therefore the spread wasn't as wide. And so a lot of the subsequent actions like the hoarding of PPE didn't need to be done. So. So now we know that a, a, that a, a properly functioning democracy and a properly functioning World Health Organization as an international institution would have acted quite uh, quickly uh, if they 
uh, had taken the Chinese Communist Party for what they are, which is a non-transparent totalitarian regime. Uh, then, interestingly, we see for the first time the Chinese Communist Party begin to conduct influence operations more like the Russians than, than is typical for them. And so in March, we see text messages coming from the Chinese Communist Party to, the, uh, to Americans uh, in the US and also social media posts that are designed to create the impression that the federal government is going to soon impose martial law. All right, so they're trying to panic the population. And if you talk to Kathleen Carley uh, at Carnegie Mellon, what she'll tell you is that 40% of the social media posts uh, surrounding the coronavirus are from bots. So that's state actors uh, essentially is trying to, um, trying to uh, create panic and so dissent. And in fact, we see the same thing happening uh, when um, you have the beginnings of peace, peaceful protests uh, with the, the death of George Floyd and then the use of, by Antifa and other groups to create violence and looting and, and, and rioting surrounding that, you also see social media bots coming from the Russians and Chinese uh, to, to help kind of inflame that. And uh, if, you, if you don't understand how these things work together to really um, inflame a situation, then I highly recommend you um, look at uh, Rand Waltzman's. He's at the Rand Corporation. Look at his presentation at DEF CON um, where he talks about the use of um, uh, influence. And, uh, and it goes all the way back to um, the, the Tsarist Russia. And, uh, and then the evolution of that, and then the use of social media to really be the driving factor behind the global spread of, of um, disinformation around the world. And, and, and so you begin to get a picture of the rising, um, the rising dissent uh, and hatred and um, division within democracies all around the world. And essentially this is, this is, has been the goal of uh, the communists for a long time. The Russians do it. The Chinese uh, now are starting to get hot and heavy into it as they, as they start to run into headwinds uh, created by the tariffs that are starting to be imposed, CFIUS regulations, the Department of Justice and the FBI all beginning to crack down on, on, the, uh, on the stealing of intellectual property and... Um, and um, and the loss of our industrial base. So, so that's kind of some, some uh, current events and where I think uh, we see uh, the relationship in terms of how the Chinese Communist Party is gonna react to the rest of the world going. I think uh, what that's gonna lead to is an acceleration of the decoupling that was already happening. It, it, it had begun during the first quarter of 2018 and really had continued uh, right along. I think the question now remains is how, you know, does the United States both protect itself, but also grow and preserve its own democracy and economy? And that's what, what uh, I think we're going to be dealing with here uh, in the next three to five years as we try to unwind ourselves from this connection with the Chinese Communist Party and begin to reinvest in our people and our nation uh, in terms of infrastructure and manufacturing. 
the last thing I'll, I'll bring up is 5G. I testified in the uh, UK House of Commons Defense Subcommittee two days ago and really explained uh, why we have a problem with 5G and why they have a problem with 5G. And it's really about data. It's about uh, our open data model. It's a technology problem. It's a problem that's been in place since the beginning of the internet. And that is the, the ability to easily aggregate data. It's just been recently in the last 10 years that Silicon Valley with the arrival of the mobile platform and 4G networks has been able to track people and then take that data and turn it into um, uh, targetable intelligence for uh, making you better consumers. That's a perfect model also turns out for controlling your behaviors. And that's essentially what uh, the Chinese Communist Party did with that technology and seek to do now uh, in terms of dominating not only China, but also uh, the rest of the free world by deploying uh, the new platform for that world, and that's 5G. And so 5G is really about taking the computing platform out of the mobile device and putting it into the network itself so that you can drive the um, machines uh, and data collection of the future. So things like cameras, cameras that are connected to the network that uh, where the network does facial recognition. So if you say you want an Uber, uh, then a Uber shows up. All of that data being collected is what China's after. And if you look, listen to Kai-Fu Lee, the leading uh, um, artificial intelligence researcher in China, he says that China is to data as Saudi Arabia is to oil. So it's really about collecting data and then using uh, big data analysis, machine learning, artificial intelligence to turn that into information that then can be used to make you better consumers or to make you better citizens according to how the Chinese Communist Party uh, defines it. So we have a technology problem, the open data model, uh, and that uh, leads to a business problem because our telcos uh, invested in $250 billion for building 4G networks, and then Facebook, Amazon, and Google came over the top, monetized user data, took all the value out of the system, and left telcos without the ability to pay off their network. So now they're struggling uh, with their model. They're not ready to deploy the next network, which is 5G, and they're certainly not ready to deploy it securely. And they were counting on Huawei to be uh, the architecture of the future because Huawei was going to um, give them the network for, at a reduced cost because China was subsidizing it because they want the data. So we have a, a, a telco industry that's not deploying 5G to make uh, the United States competitive in artificial intelligence and autonomy because they're not building that network uh, uh, for the United States. And the same thing exists in UK and other free countries where you don't have uh, a non-market-based system to drive the type of infrastructure investment that needs to happen. And then finally, we have a policy problem because uh, you know, our national security establishment has ex hasn't accepted that while we do a good job of protecting the air, land, sea, and space, we do an absolutely horrible job at protecting our nation's data and protecting our nation, nation's citizens uh, from influence in the uh, digital domain. So um, not only do we have a hard time preventing the economic and financial um, relationships that cause many of our political, corporate, Wall Street, academic leaders to essentially be co-opted by the Chinese Communist Party. We also don't understand how they're, uh, and don't have a handle on 
how they're influencing at the individual level. So with that, I think I'll wrap it up and, uh, and, and take any questions. Well, thank you, sir. Um, I do have a few questions. Um, one comes from um, Alberto Espinoza. I'll paraphrase it. Uh, do you see much evidence of uh, American companies moving their factories and other uh, operations out of China? Um, there's been a, a lot of reporting that that is happening. I would say that there are also companies that are doubling down in China. Um, what, what is not really, I think, well known amongst the private sector is that um, there, is this, there is this increasing level of kind of work going on in the bureaucracy that's going to lead to policies uh, and, um, and also to some funding and, and other incentives that uh, for those companies that realize how this how things are changing, if they get in front of, they're going to be able to catch the wave. I think what you're going to see is a number of companies that double down in China and therefore get hurt, uh, and then those companies that realize that this supply chain is moving, and it's probably going to happen within you know very rapidly within the next year, where we're going to have a transition of how the federal government treats companies that are manufacturing abroad. And I think there's an opportunity that that either can be beneficial or um, leave you kind of sucking wind um, if you're not if you're not paying attention. Um, um, I have a question. Do you think we need a Manhattan Project for 5G? Well, you know, I I, I do, but I think the Manhattan Project, in the way that it was conducted in secrecy, I don't think we need that um, that level, and I don't think the government needs to pay for it. I think there's a lot of ways to stimulate uh, infrastructure investment for what is a what is a um, a, a very high tech AI based platform. It's not a, your standard you know pipe, data pipe like uh, tel, uh, telecoms are building today. It's it, there's a lot of advanced high speed computing. There's there's encryption. There's other um, things that are in the network that don't exist in the current networks today. That network can be built by the private sector but it's not gonna be built by the telcos. The telcos are building a network that suits their business model today, which is really about Facebook and Netflix. What we're talking about here is a network that allows for self-driving cars and remote surgery and all the you know, autonomous you know, uh, applications and use cases that 5G is supposed to um, create. That is not the network that the telecoms are, 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 are building. So. I think yes, we need a we need a national project, and the reason we need a national project is because now, right now, the cost of rate of five G radios because the telcos aren't really buying them in bulk, they're too high. And so, what we need is some kind of stimulus to do a, a national, say, a national autonomy corridor, which is one of the things that I talked about when I was at the White House. Because when you do that, when you when you have that kind of national level project you can order say 10,000 radios. And when you, when you forward order 10,000 radios, then, then you can get into production flow. And if you get into production flow, the price of the radio comes down quite rapidly. And now your ability to deploy that all over the country becomes much easier as communities can, can acquire this equipment at prices that, that make sense to their budget. So um, that's not gonna happen unless we get the government uh, to, to actually take a leadership role in that. 
This uh, question comes from uh, Satoshi Sam Nishihata. Thank you for this event on one of the most critical topics. Question about the most recently often discussed issue that the US may lose in the high-tech warfare with China, mainly raised by Christian bros. What is your assessment on the current situation of the US military forces in this area? Thank you. Um, I guess I'm not aware of the, I'm not aware of the, uh, of the issue that they're talking about. Okay. Do you, do you, how, where do you think we stand with regard to our, uh, uh, competitive ability with China in high-tech warfare? Uh, well, I think the Chinese are, are actually quite advanced. They have uh, maneuvering, uh, hypersonic missiles. They have maneuvering ballistic missiles that are um, carrier killers. They have stealth fighters. They're soon to have a stealth bomber. Uh, they have a very advanced uh, submarines. They are building new aircraft carriers. They have a, a bigger uh, Navy than, than we do. They have quantum uh, uh, communication satellites. They have um, you know, thousands of ballistic missiles. And, and quite frankly, we have configured our military to fight in the Middle East and Europe and they've built theirs for, you know, for the Pacific. And so uh, we have to, uh, and we're struggling to meet the, the level of, of military power that they have in the region. And quite frankly, it's too expensive uh, using our current configuration. Short range fighters aren't gonna get to, um, aren't gonna get to, to, uh, to the fight because, uh, you know, the Chinese have the ballistic missiles uh, arrayed against our airfields in the region. You know, it's, it's just a very, very expensive and difficult proposition if we try to take the current military and apply that in the Pacific. And it's something that we probably should have been paying attention to 20 years ago. And it's going to require us to really focus heavily on the deter deterrence mission and really build up the ability to be effective and efficient in how we uh, use conventional weapons in the region to deter attack. And, and here specifically, I'm talking about Taiwan or the East China Sea or the South China Sea. Yeah, that's a very troubling area. Um, here's a question. Uh, what is the best way for the US to combat the, and, it, and the term is BRI, and I'm not sure I know what that oh, means. Oh, Belt and Road Initiative. Oh, the Belt and Road Initiative, okay. So, um, you know, when I was at the White House, I went to the USAID and, and, and I asked them, you know, what's our strategy? And we really didn't have a strategy, in fact, if you look at development dollars in the budget, it's you know a water project for this country in particular, and that differs greatly from how China uses development dollars. You know, there's a there's a thought process in how they do it. So they look for a resource for Chinese market like cobalt for lithium-ion batteries in Democratic Republic of the Congo, and, and they build the mine, they build the port that gets that uh, ore to uh, to China on a ship. They build the, the rail, the roads, telecommunications, power, water. And now when you have the skeleton of a, of a developed country, they start to bring in a low value added manufacturing, uh, which they were doing, um, you know, 30% of their investment in 2017, 2016 was uh, low value added manufacturing. And then they brought in uh, urbanization, built the housing for the factory workers. And then of course, uh, shortly thereafter, $50 smartphones, and, and really so rapidly progressed from an industrialized society to an information-based society, all tightly linked to the Chinese economy. 
and Chinese businesses. And so this is their method of development. And I think it's quite successful. And in fact, it's, it's based on a model that we had both in the Marshall Plan in Korea, in Japan, and Taiwan, when we used our economic uh, might to help rebuild countries, but also to infuse them with you know, uh, principles of liberty and free trade. Those are all things that you know, uh, the Chinese have done very, very well in the Belt and Road Initiative, except without the liberty and free trade, they're bringing in authoritarian, uh, IT-based authoritarianism as a means for you know, uh, bringing these countries into their orbit. So it's been very successful for them geopolitically. Uh, Tidros at, uh, um, at the World Health Organization is one example. Ethiopia has taken billions of dollars of Chinese money. So they're very, very influential in those communities and with those, uh, with those politicians, both in the international and domestic level. So it's a challenge that, uh, quite frankly, uh, that I talk about where we have to go from breaking to building. We have to be, uh, we're very good at combat, but we need to be much better and smarter about how we strategically uh, invest in development and then how we work with our allies and partners, uh, you know, institutions like JVIC in Japan and, and, and bring in the EU so that we collectively as democracies begin to help these emerging market economies, you know, develop. But when they develop, they develop in ways that promote liberty and civil rights and, and, uh, and, human, and civil liberties and human rights and rule of law. That, that's something that we've been very poor at, I think. I think there's a recognition by the National Security Council we need to do, do this. Certainly it's in the national security strategy, but then getting um, the kind of muscle memory that we had during the Cold War and, and some of the times that we did these other development activities before, that's very difficult because you're talking about reoriented, uh, reorienting agencies and departments around a different way of looking at geopolitics and geostrategy and, and how we how we use national power to promote our interests abroad. Okay, this next question uh, comes from Michael Manweiler. Should the Democrats retake the White House in November, how do you see the US policy towards China shifting, especially if Biden is sitting in the uh, Oval Office? Well, you know, I think what, what I've seen coming from that campaign is this, um, reticence to speak out about China now in, in, uh, in, in really, I think the party's recognizing that um, Biden's a little bit compromised based on Hunter Biden's uh, relationship with the Chinese Communist Party and his long-term relationship with the Chinese Communist Party. So um, I'm not sure how they're going to square that circle. But part of the problem that I see is, you know, Nancy Pelosi used to be very, very strong. Uh, and and I, I was applauding her uh, strength on you know, calling out the Chinese Communist Party. But recently, and especially during the coronavirus uh, and, and, and uh, during these riots, when we know that the Chinese Communist Party is involved in influence, really been silent. So uh, I think the Democratic Party is trying to figure out how they can uh, have a different policy uh, with regard to China than the president, but then not to be too um, not be too easy on them. I think part of the problem, uh, quite frankly, for the next administration is you're going to see on both sides of the aisle in, on, in Congress that they're going to be staunchly against uh, you know the Chinese Communist Party. And so, uh, if it is a, a democratic administration, then they're going to have a hard time, I think, um, doing things cooperatively uh, with the Chinese Communist Party going forward. 
Very good. Uh, the next question is from Christopher Kleisch. How do you suggest educating the, bro the broader public on this issue? Well, that's, um, you know, I asked to, to, to retire early from the Air Force so I could write the, the book Stealth War. That's why I'm out there speaking every day. I think, you know, I had a conversation with a company today and uh, a company that faces, you know, uh, you know, one in, in their industry, a Chinese company that's dominating the industry. And I, and I asked a simple question. I said, you know, have you filed a, a Section 232 um, uh, uh, investigation request? And what they told me, they said, well, you know, we talked to the Commerce Department and the um, and, and BIS and asked them, you know, what they thought we should do and they recommended we not do it. And I said, well, this is, this is part of our problem because we're not exercising the laws on our books to get Chinese companies to abide by the rules. And many times our own companies are afraid to come forward and, you know, ask for help from the government because they don't want to, they don't want to look like they can't be competitive or that uh, they need government help or that, um, they don't want the Chinese Communist Party coming after them. And so um, what, what we need people to do to, to help this thing go is to, is to stand up and be heard, to let your voice be heard, to talk about what the Chinese Communist Party is doing to your business or doing in your industry or doing in your university or doing in your part of the world and really be, be recognized as standing up for human rights and civil liberties. You know, Secretary Pompeo has been loud and clear with regard to uh, his role in talking about human rights and civil liberties and democratic principles. And the State Department, um, you know, has traditionally shied away from, from uh, countering uh, the narrative of the Chinese Communist Party. And today it's standing up. And I think Americans, uh, and whether you're in industry or you're in Wall Street, you need to stand up and you start thinking about uh, the future of our country and, and standing up for the American people, and not just American people, demo, democratic principles uh, around the world. Yeah. Um, what's your sense of the changing tide? Uh, Debbie Aldridge asks, are we ramping up in light of the threat on multiple levels, kinetic and otherwise? Um, well, Part of the problem, again, is our defense budget is really maxed out now, but our ability to convert that into a presence in the Pacific and in the Indo-Pacific is it's just too expensive right now. So we have to kind of reshape our conventional forces for conventional deterrence in the Indo-Pacific, but we still have nuclear forces and, and we ought to focus on those as a deterrent for conflict with China. I don't anticipate the United States going to a kinetic war with China anytime uh, in the near future. It's just too damaging and dangerous when you have two nuclear powers um, contemplating that. I don't think the Chinese leadership wants to see, you know, all of their shining new cities put at risk and, and neither do we. So I don't, I don't anticipate that, that as a future that we, that we face. I, rather, I, I think that you're going to see the same kind of um, below the belt fighting that's been going on where, we're essentially a punching bag, and they're and they're hauling off and swinging off for all they got. I think I think that's what's changed now, and you're going to see much more competitive United States come out in all areas and and actually compete. And I think what's going to happen is you're going to see that this devolves 
much like uh, the first Cold War devolved into much more of an economic and financial and trade competition where an open system where people can be innovative and free has the, the upper hand as long as we can protect our critical data. And this is where you know, this ties into the Manhattan Project we were talking about. If we don't protect our data, our strategic resource of the 21st century, then we're gonna, have, we're gonna face a disadvantage. If, however, we do protect our data with encryption and ensure that it can't be uh, used by Chinese companies or, or, or the Chinese military, and I think we're going to be in a much better place because uh, we're going to be able to, to, to actually uh, reap the own fruits of our labor. Hmm. Um, uh, Dr. Spalding, one of our uh, trustees, Michael Maybeck, uh, asks if you could share some insights about the perspectives of China's neighbors, South Korea, Japan, Singapore, and so forth. Well, you know, so you, there's, um, the, the, the best way to, to say this is there's, there's um, two minds and, and one mind is China's very big and it's their biggest trading partner for most of these countries, if not all of them. But at the same time, they don't trust the, the Chinese Communist Party. And so it's what they've been able to do for so long, for, for decades really, is you know, essentially have a foot in both camps. And, uh, you know, so the, the national security strategy says, well, you can't have a foot in both camps because ultimately, if you have a foot in both camps, then one camp's going to lose and one camp's going to win because the, the Chinese Communist Party depends on capital, innovation, technology, and talent flowing from democracies into that authoritarian system to continue to grow in power. And so as long as we let that, we're essentially undermining our own uh, freedoms, our own security, and our own uh, economies. And that ultimately um, sees a change in a balance of power that moves from democracies to authoritarians. And so I think what, what the administration's been doing quite clearly since the first quarter of 2018 is uh, having this steady diplomacy with all of our allies and partners saying, look, you can't have it both ways. You either have to be with them or you have to be with us. That you can't, you can't be with them for your economy and be with us for security because in doing so, you're, you're undermining our collective security and our collective economies. And mm -hmm. I think I was in, I was in Brussels in Berlin uh, last fall and uh, you know, talked to the German government, those that have responsibility for 5G. We went to the EU, NATO. And what I heard were, were a lot of officials that recognized uh, the challenge that uh, that China and the Chinese Communist Party pose for their democracies, not just as countries, but as the EU and NATO countries, and that they're beginning to uh, work on that. And you've just seen that the UK is beginning to reconsider its decision with regard to 5G. You're seeing other European countries do that. So I think you know what you what you see today is there's still a little bit of you wanting to have a foot in both camps. And we're seeing that from Korea, for example. But the bottom line is they're not going to be able to. They're going to have to choose. And I think most of them that are uh, allies of the United States militarily are going to choose to, to bring the rest of their relationship back into more of a democratic uh, trading fold. Well, you do a nice job of making these issues so clear. Thank you. Uh, we have a question from an IWP student, uh, Sebastian Todoras. One of the most common cures for disinformation mentioned is to increase efforts to expose the truth. 
The other one is to educate people to recognize bias and disinformation when they come upon it. Do you feel that is enough? And if not, what element or solution might we be missing? Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's actually a good question. And I, rec I highly recommend um, kind of looking towards Taiwan because, uh, so I was there a year ago, um, prior to the elections, I met with President Tsai. I, we talked a lot about Chinese Communist Party influence through social media and the internet, uh, and also legacy media. The Chinese Communist Party dominates legacy uh, Chinese language media and print and radio and television all over the world. And so uh, this year, when I led a delegation to monitor the elections, what I found was a Taiwan that had essentially begun to do those kinds of things, educating the public about disinformation. The government had a policy to, I think, answer within 24 hours when, when, when fake news was, was spread out there about things. And then they had a number of non-governmental um, NGOs that were, their job was to be independent fact checkers and, uh, and, and set up, you know, uh, venues where people could, could question whether or not something that they had seen or heard uh, was, was factual. So, you know, they're living 70 miles off the, um, off the uh, you know, the mainland. And plus, plus they know that the, the Chinese Communist Party hasn't given up, uh, you know, their, their, you know, use of force to, to re reclaim Taiwan. They, so they understand the threat and they've been adapting to it. I think it's something for us to look at, you know, how do we implement that in the United States in ways that help promote our, uh, you know, our system in ways, because quite frankly, institutions like the Global Engagement Center at the State Department don't have the authority to collect the data that allows them to understand what's going on in our social media. So it's, you know, it's incumbent. What I do, what I personally do is when I see propaganda, I ensure that I, I call it out on social media. I think that would be very helpful, but also this idea of standing up these independent fact-checking organizations that are apolitical, not partisan, just trying to get to the truth, I think is so important as in, in terms of preserving civil society until in such time that we actually have an internet that's secure and encrypted that people can go to and, and know that, hey, just like today when you, can, um, when, you, when you know that the Chinese don't have tanks rolling down 435, you also know that, um, that you don't have the, the PLA in your internet. So it's important that we all work on this on this issue. Um, we have a question from an MA student. I'm sorry, I can't pronounce the name, but I'll read the question. I'm currently doing my MA thesis on China, Iran, energy security, and geopolitical relations. I would like to ask how the U.S. assesses China's increasing influence in the Persian Gulf given the fact that both China and U.S. cooperate during the nuclear negotiations uh, in Iran? Well, you know, I think uh, the Chinese have a strategy, uh, much like uh, Kissinger talked about American strategy with regard to uh, Russia and China, and that is to ensure that, um, that uh, you're closer to each than they are to each other. And, and that for China, that applies to Saudi Arabia and Iran. So in Iran, uh, certainly, uh, China is a beneficiary of cheap oil because uh, they're helping them, uh, you know, get out from under the sanctions. But at the same time, they want access to Saudi oil. So, um, 
you know, I, I think that relationship with Iran is what allows the regime to survive. It's a, it's a strong relationship economically and also in terms of technology. And, and I would imagine that that's going to continue to uh, promote the Iranian regime. But that being said, the Chinese are very, very wary of, you know, putting all their eggs in one basket. So they also have the Russians up north to, to get energy from. So for, for the Chinese Communist Party, they don't have friends. They don't have allies. They have interests. Uh, they're realists, and uh, they're ensuring that they've got a diverse, uh, diversified um, source of, of energy. Uh, Dr. Spalding, how are you doing for time? Uh, we have another uh, five or 15 minutes, depending on uh, how, how long you guys uh, would like. Okay. To. I have a question from uh, James Vito. What long-term effects do you think COVID-19 will have on China's Belt and Road Initiative? That's, that's a very good question. It really depends on um, whether or not uh, the president carries through with um, changing the special relationship that Hong Kong has. And then if we force uh, the SEC to ensure that, you know, uh, Chinese companies can't sell their stocks and bonds in Western capital markets. If that happens, it's going to be very, very difficult, um, uh, particularly if other democracies go along with the United States in that for the Chinese to um, get hard currency, which means that it's going to slow down the Belt and Road Initiative quite significantly. Now, um, to the extent that that economic union between uh, China and the countries of the Belt and Road Initiative outperforms democracies, uh, then that means that we're going to have a hard time as democracies in, in convincing uh, you know, those that are on the sideline that uh, democracy and free trade is the way to go. So um, you know, it's really about whether or not we implement uh, clearly what's in our own best interests will determine whether or not the Belt and Road Initiative has legs or whether it just um, essentially withers and dies. I think right now I'm, I'm looking for it to be uh, for the Chinese Communist Party to essentially, I believe, uh, when they tore up the 50 pages for the, the first trade deal, that they at that point had decided to decouple from the United States and then use their Belt and Road Initiative countries as a means to create a, a whole separate system, both digitally and trade-wise and economically and financially. Hmm. And I think they're they're just trying to take as much opportunity for Things like, you know, differential treatment of Hong Kong, access to Western capital markets to see how much they can they can get out of the system before they close, before everything gets closed off. You know, it, to this to the extent that they're able to consolidate and um, and really control the countries of the Belt and Road Initiative and really make it more of an economic union, we could be in for a, a long winter. Okay. I've got two more questions. I'm going to paraphrase this one. Paraphrase this one from uh, Jonathan Grau. Um, with China pushing their policies in Hong Kong, and and it looks like they're going to be uh, taking over Hong Kong to some degree uh, in the near future. What do you think this portends for Taiwan, and what will our role be? So um, the fourth plenum that was in December of last year, uh, the Chinese Communist Party said, in, in fact, in effect, uh, Hong Kong is no longer going to be an independent country. It's actually going to be no different than mainland. So uh, I expect now that Hong Kong, you know, in terms of being an independent entity, is gone, uh, gone for 
and you know for as long as the Chinese Communist Party exists um, and 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 how that you know what that means for Taiwan I think you know it, one of the things I'm concerned about is this um, is uh, you know this aggression that is ill-informed and I think it's important for us for the United States and, and our allies to be very very resolute and determined and deter uh, any kind of activity like that, because I think it would be a, a terrible thing for the world. I mean, it would be much like uh, Czechoslovakia in 1968. So do I think that's going to happen? I think take, doing an amphibious landing in in uh, um, Taiwan is going to be much harder than it is than it was to roll tanks in Czechoslovakia in 1968. So I don't anticipate conflict uh, on the horizon. At the same time, though, we should not be um, we should not be asleep at the wheel. We should be paying attention and and really uh, trying to deter that kind of behavior. Um, I just got another question that's just too good to avoid. Um, what should we do about the Chinese firewall? Systematically take it down? Could the DoD or any intel agencies be out uh, in charge? I can't read the rest of the question, but. Um, so this is actually one that, that Dr. Lynchowski and I talked about when I was at the White House. You know, we had used to have a U.S. information agency, an independent agency for public diplomacy. And since the end of the Cold War and the disbanding of the USIA in 1999, our ability to do public diplomacy and have the kind of budgets that you need to do something like that have essentially withered. We need to be engaging the Chinese people. That's what Radio Free Asia and Radio Free Europe and and, and uh, the U.S. Information Agency was about during uh, the Cold War. It was about um, portraying our message um, of, of truth and, and liberty to the people. And that was really what gave them hope. And many leaders that came uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, and the end of the Soviet Union came to the United States, went to VOA and Radio for Europe and, and thanked, uh, thanked those, those organizations for you know, being a beacon of hope for them in a very, um, you know, uh, uh, trying time. So this is something that we haven't done. We haven't emphasized. We've spent hundreds of billions of dollars on weapons, but, you know, a little, a few billion dollars on the truth and spreading that truth, I think is incredibly important. And it's one of the things that, you know, Americans are known for is, is their liberty and, 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 and love of human rights and, and civil liberty. So, we ought to be blasting that out. And so I very much applaud, you know, trying to get as much information about the truth, about uh, the Chinese people's true history to the Chinese people uh, as a means of, um, you know, countering what the Chinese Communist Party is clearly doing and what I talked about today in terms of influence in our own population. I have one final question uh, for you, uh, Rob, and that is, this is from Michael Maybeck again. Does their political, their closed political system and leader for life give them an advantage over a divided competitive political life in the U.S. and the West? <laughs> oh, that's such a great question. And, you know, this is what I hear from, you know, very, very accomplished uh, elites here in the United States that, yes, it does. And, and I, I tell them absolutely not. Chinese state-owned enterprises are not as efficient as U.S. companies. They just get to, you know, have the access to innovation, technology, talent, and capital because we've let them. In fact, we gave it to them because we thought that they would democratize. So, no, 
The Chinese model isn't any different than the Soviet model. It's just had access to all of the Western innovations in, in, in capital. And once we start to cut that off and they're forced to you know, rely on their own to grow it, the, the system begins to fall apart quite quickly. The problem is, and this is what I, the, 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 I think my biggest frustration is, there's been this, and, and uh, James Mann, the, the author of The China Fantasy, talks about this, you know, this, this China, you know, this, this delusion that China is going to fall apart. The Chinese Communist Party is smart. They're pragmatic. They're going to use everything we give them. If we don't push on it, if we don't put pressure on it, they will continue to grow in power. And it's really about protecting our own people, protecting democracies, protecting our, our businesses, promoting our own uh, science and technology and investing in infrastructure and manufacturing in a way that we used to do and investing in STEM education. When we do that and we cut off access for the Chinese Communist Party, the whole system comes crashing down and they know it. And, uh, and yet, you know, and I, guys like Leo Hu, you know, who sits at the right hand of, of Xi Jinping, who's his economic guy, who's the only guy, by the way, when I went to Mar-a-Lago with uh, with Xi, uh, in, uh, you know, I was uh, escorting uh, Fang Fanghui, the, the chief of the joint staff from Beijing. Liu Ha was the only guy that was pointed out to me by, uh, by my interlocutors. And, uh, you know, that, so Liu Ha would, I would, if, if Liu Ha had his choice, uh, that China wouldn't be closing, it would be opening up because he knows that's what's going to, what's going to really, um, you know, make China strong is if it's, if it's open. But, Xi Jinping just can't do that. He's a, he's a uh, died in the wool communist. And I think, um, you know, in a lot of ways, we benefit from the fact that the Chinese Communist Party, um, you know, doubled down on, on their ideology. So, uh, you know, as long as, we've, as long as we stick to our values and we don't give up the farm to them, we're going to win. Hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you, sir, for your very, very... Uh provocative and interesting uh, discussion on these issues. And I, I also want to thank our audience for uh, tuning in. Um, uh, this has been an absolutely excellent conversation, uh, briefing by you, and uh, I hope we can invite you back again. Um, and to the audience, if you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP, or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu, iwp.edu. Thank you, everybody, and good Thank evening. Thank you so much.